Welcome to episode number eight of Programmers Who Give a Shit. I'm very excited to bring you this episode with Chris Jensen, who is the creator of the Do No Harm license. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Excellent. I'm really enthusiastic about this license. I think it's going to make a really big difference. For people who aren't familiar with the Do No Harm license, can you give a bit of a background about why it was created and what it does? Sure. Um, thanks for your enthusiasm for the license too. It's, um, it's been great to see the license being shared and, and spread around and people like yourself tweeting about it and contributing to the, the issues and the discussions. Uh, the Do No Harm license came about because um, you know, we, we wanted to create something for coders who, who give a shit, um, who are concerned about what their code is being used for and didn't want to wake up one morning and discover that their code had been used to improve the efficiency of an organization that was interning children or a coal, oil or gas company that are trying to add even more fossil fuels to their assets when we don't have the time to burn anymore. Um, or, you know, a bunch of other things that are, you know, in this day and age are quite clearly not okay. Um, it came about, like, it was really quite a natural progression of what we do at Raisley. Um, so I work for Raisley.com. We build uh, technology to help uh, progressive nonprofits uh, do good. And we started building some libraries for our work and thought, hey, you know, this, we found this pretty useful. Maybe we should open source it. Um, and then as we were thinking about doing that, we're like, well, you know, our mandate for the software that we build is that it shouldn't be used to counter the work of the charities that we, that we support. So probably when we release open source software, we should also be thinking about that. We looked around for a a suitable license and we couldn't find anything. Um, you know, the the closest thing that was available, which isn't really a, a real attempt at it. Uh, was the JSON license, uh, which oh, yeah. just said, do no evil. Mm. We took inspiration from socially responsible investment exclusion screens and so started a GitHub project and started working from there on um, what the license should look like, what it should exclude or include, um, and hoping for other people to be inspired and join us along the way. Yeah, it's such a good idea because I think a lot of programmers will have the idea that the code is pure and that's all that matters and that if you write good code then you're almost being like Switzerland you're staying out of the the battles so to speak you're not necessarily directly contributing to making the world a worse place but if you then look at where some of these open source projects are being used I mean Palantir is an arms contractor and they're using Learner and a bunch of other open source libraries and British American Tobacco is using jQuery. A few of the other tobacco companies are using React. It's fairly widespread that companies that I personally would consider to not be very ethical are using open source software. And in effect, any time that we make a contribution to any of those packages or like Raisley did, release our own software, we are letting it out free for all, which is good in some senses but also can be not so good what yeah it's um i think i think it's important to remember like there's um a misnomer that often floats around like you say that that the code is neutral but there's really no such thing as a neutral stance to choose to take a neutral stance is basically to stand up in support of the status quo and 
when the status quo is as it is in 2018, when we're seeing, you know, all the sorts of things, we are, you know, the, the news that we see, we really need to start thinking if, if we're okay with being bystanders to that. Yeah, definitely. What kind of an effect do you hope that do no harm will have? Um, well, obviously, we hope to see it, you know, adopted by by some big projects, or you know, maybe more realistically, it's adopted by small projects that grow into big projects over time. Um, as we've seen, changing the license of a, a large open source project can be <laughs> difficult. Um, but I think possibly more importantly than that is just having that first engagement with coders, you know, when they encounter this license and them being prompted to think about what their code does. Um, we, like, we, we just don't often think about that. And I think particularly in the, you know, in the world of open source, um, we just kind of think about, you know, we're contributing our code to the community. We're doing a good thing. Yep. It's available for, you know, for anyone to use. Um, and it doesn't often cross our minds that maybe anyone could include people that slowly kill their customers for profit by selling them tobacco or um, fossil fuel companies or ICE collaborators. Um, like for, for, for me, when I started my journey as a, as a programmer, that stuff wasn't on my radar either. I, you know, there's a point where I sort of left my first job and was looking around for a new job because I needed to pay for my studies uh, I was intending to study overseas. And so I was just basically like looking for the job that would pay the most. And I must have seen a dozen recruiters and only one of them asked me, well, if we offered you a job with someone who makes alcohol, tobacco, or is involved in gambling, would you take that job? And I'm, like, it was in an interview. So I was in interview mode, you know, young, <laughs> ambitious, uh, you know, eager to give the correct answer. So of course I said, yes. And it was only when I got home that I went, hang on, why did I say yes to that? Like, my, my mum smokes and everyone in the family would, would really like to see her stop because we know it's terrible for her health. Mm. And so why would I then want to spend eight hours a day, five days a week contributing to an organization that does that for profit? But it took someone sitting in front of me to ask me that question for me to think about it. And so I hope that likewise the do no harm license is starting to get people to ask that. And also likewise, you know, the, the issue that happened with the learner license and other discussions that are taking place, they're getting people to think about where they sit on these things. Yeah, absolutely. That's what excites me as well. Just having those conversations and stirring those internal reflections. We talked a bit about learner. Should we give some background on what happened there? I liked the blog post that you wrote about it. Do you want to give a bit of a summary of it from your perspective? Um, sure. Um, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I came along a little bit late. Um, a colleague um, who knew that I was involved in um, the No Harm license um, alerted me to, to one of the, um, the issues that had been filed on, uh, on Blue, uh, Palantir's code base. Um, so, yeah, the Learner's a, a large um, open source project and I think one of the original developers had um, put in a pull request to change the license to explicitly exclude uh, ICE collaborators. So companies that had, uh, specifically large companies that had contracts with uh, immigrations and customs enforcement in the US um, as a protest against 
you know, what ICE is doing to children and locking children in cages. Um, I think that pull request was committed and lasted for about two days before the maintainers reverted that and uh, ejected the, um, the person behind the change. Um, it was like, there's a lot of things to say about that. I think, I think that, I think it was a really, you know, admirable that, that, that not just that developer, but there are a lot of developers supportive of him as well. Yeah. Um, and, and really, you know, really exciting to see this discussion happening in, in the open source space. Um, it's, you know, it's obviously a shame that it was reverted, but I think there are, there are lessons in that for us that, um, about the way that we engage with people and the way that we talk about it, the, you know, a lot of the conversation was very heated and very aggressive. Mm. Um, and that doesn't often end well, particularly on the internet. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, like a, a lot of us who end up in the, you know, in the software development space, we're smart people. Uh, I, I use inverted commas when I, when I say that. What I mean is like, we were, you know, we were often academic kids and did well in school. Um, and one of the, I think one of the, the disservices that schooling really does for us is that it teaches us that all we have to do is show up with the right answers and that tone of voice or attitude or building bridges aren't relevant. Mm. Uh, and you can see that the learner experience is a really, really clear example that that's just not how it works. Yeah. And it almost goes to show that the ends don't justify the means there. I, I think, I mean, one of the aspects of the no harm license is to prevent usage by organizations that promote harassment and arguably some of the issues that were opened on Palantir were essentially harassment. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say that you don't want to support ICE collaborators, but then to call an entire organization and all, all of its staff racist is maybe going a bit too far. I like to think that yeah. the people who are working at companies like Palantir aren't necessarily doing it because they like locking children up in cages, but rather maybe it, it hasn't been clear the effect that their work has been having. And indeed, there are probably internal protests about it. So if we give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that they would like to be ethical and try to bring them along the journey, as you were saying, and making sure that the dialogue to change is done in a respectful manner, that will hopefully lead to the license being adopted and not immediately being rejected for toxic politicization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's two, there's two aspects to that, right? There's like, you know, obviously if we're trying to create a better world, we, we should be walking the talk. Um, now there are people who disagree on that and, and, and are rightfully angry about the things that we see in the world now. And it's, you know, you can't really fault them for being so angry about like the images that we see, you know, of, of what ICE is doing to children, for example. But there is also like the pragmatic argument to be made, which is, as you say, like there are people inside Palantir who aren't really aware of what's going on. Um, probably the software de devs, like most of the software development community, aren't even necessarily aware of how their code is being used. Um, and you're not going to win those people over by calling them racists. Yeah, and I think the argument that I saw on the, 
their issue tracker. And they were actually incredibly respectful and diplomatic, I thought. They opened their reply to Jamie by saying, thank you for all the contributions you've made to open source. And they didn't lash back at, in the way that he had. Their argument was that they don't really see themselves as ICE collaborators because they're actually not involved, according to them, with the part of the organisation that's locking up children in cages, but rather the part that's dealing with some other kind of immigration detention, which is possibly more legit. Though then the argument is that if you if you you have a contract with ICE at all, then maybe you're not following ethical business practices. I remember there was a an issue in No Harm about that recently, I think you were, you did that table where you were asking, should we still allow business units within a large organization where maybe part of the business is incredibly unethical, but then other parts are more on the neutral spectrum? Should they be banned from using that open source package if it was licensed under no harm? Do you want to expound upon that a little bit? Yeah, that's probably like I think I think that's the the most challenging part about the license that we're grappling with at the moment, right? Is to what extent is someone, you know, is is a harmful practice uh, blocked? You know, is it simply if you know if the organization themselves uses the software specifically for that purpose? Is it if the organization does that purpose at all, even without? Um, even without using the software, um, or you know, is it is it if that um, if they're selling to people that do that, or if they're um, if they if they have those kind of things in their supply chain? And it's really you know, as I was writing out that table, it is kind of something that we have to tackle um, issue by issue um, because it's very different in each approach into into I think what society considers to be acceptable behavior and also again from a from a pragmatic perspective like like you say with huge organizations a software developer will probably just go uh, like just put it in the too hard basket because they're like i don't know if my company is doing this or not um which is fine for some things like if it's like i don't know if my company sells to alcohol and tobacco companies not that we block alcohol um then fine but if you know if your if your company is uh, is engaged with supporting the traffic of slaves, for example, well, then maybe the bar for that needs to be a little bit higher, and maybe it's it's not okay for for the business to be involved in that in any way. Um, and then there are other ones which are you know um, things like um, energy generation. Um, you know, as much as we'd like to, like we're at a point in history now where we just basically need to draw the line at any use of fossil fuels. But realistically, if you said you can't have fossil fuels anywhere in your supply chain, then no company on earth yeah. could use the license because our energy system has not yet transformed to the point where people can really make that choice. Mm. It reminds me of an email chain I was looking at recently from a, an ethical architecture newsletter where they were talking about modern slavery legislation that's coming out in Australia and they were arguing that essentially no business is ready for that because we businesses are not used to subjecting their supply chain to the degree of scrutiny where they'd be able to see whether maybe there's a, a, a supply that's five levels below them that's using cobalt that was mined 
in the Congo by child slaves. They just don't, there's no way for them to have visibility around that. But maybe having, putting that out there will encourage them to, to scrutinize their supply chains more clearly and to start providing their employees with more visibility as well of what they do and don't do. Yeah, it's like when you get into like very deep supply chains, it's it's a really hard problem to tackle. Like as as we know, like if you've been watching the space or you know the stuff on conflict minerals, for example, it's it's been really drawn on, drawn out to tackle that. Um, but I think also like on the flip side of that, companies have a tendency to say things are impossible when they don't want to do them. Um, yeah. You know, a very obvious example is emissions standards, right? Like every single increase in emissions standards has been impossible to achieve um, whenever it's proposed. And yet somehow car manufacturers manage to do that. Um, and it is only when, like, when they are forced by legislation or forced by their customers or for some other circumstances basically make the only option for them to do the right thing, then they do the right thing and actually it turns out it, it wasn't as hard as they said it would be. Yeah. They just... It was it was just it was just going to cost them money, and they don't they don't want to spend that money if they don't have to because that's how companies work. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> In terms of some of the other reservations that people have about the no harm license, one of the main ones has been that there's concern about whether a copyright license can be used for this kind of purpose. Do you have any comment on that at this stage? I know you said that you wanted to get a lawyer to have a look at the license and vet it in some way. Do you have any intuition at this stage? Um, I, I, I don't know if I can really, as you know, as someone who's not a lawyer, share an intuition about that. Um, I think, like, I think it is really untested. Um, is is the is what I'm finding in the discussions? Like, there are some people who, who say, "No way, you can't do this." There are other people who say, "Actually, like, this might be possible." Um, and I think that the clearest indicator we have so far is the is is actually the JSON license that said, "Do no evil," um, which was was funny because it was criticised for being too vague to be possibly enforceable. Um, and yet at the same time, um, everyone quite likes to point out the joke that IBM showed up and said, can we have your permission to use this software for evil? So yeah. they, they were obviously sufficiently concerned about the possibility of enforcement that they bothered to go through that process, um, yeah. which, you know, which would have taken, you know, cost them time in terms of their lawyers looking over it and other, other amounts of time when, you would have thought an easier option would be just to, to rewrite the code. So, so that, like, I think the, the argument that like, well, well, big companies are just, are just going to use your software anyway, and they're not going to care, or they're just going to, going to write around it. Um, if they're, if they're going to go to the trouble of seeing if they can get a license for JSON, which would have been fairly easily written around, Okay, maybe that's an exaggeration to say it was fairly easily written around, but certainly more easily written around than something like Learner, which people were also arguing that they'll just fork it and, and work around it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that argument necessarily is as clear cut as as people are making it out to be. Yeah, because there's a huge business cost to writing around it. I 
can't imagine how many thousands of hours it would have taken Microsoft to rewrite Linux if it's true that they ended up doing that to avoid the GPL license on it. But it would have cost them a lot of money and a lot of time to have done that. Yeah, and it's also a, a, a vindication of the open source movement, right? That they're prepared to invest that much money in order to interoperate with the other software that's built in open source, um, you know, says something about how, how important it is today to work with open source and how successful that movement is. So to then turn around and say, well, if you create an ethical license, people are just going to write around it. Um, that would be a sign of success, not a sign of failure. Yeah, definitely. In terms of open source, another concern that I've seen people raise is that by excluding anyone, regardless of what the exclusions are about, that's going against the ethos of open source and it's going to destroy the whole fabric of the open source movement or words to that effect. Do you reckon that's similar to people just beating it up and saying it's too hard or is there any truth to this? Well... I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of irony, isn't there, about people from the open source movement spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt. <laughs> um, I mean, to, to more seriously answer that question, um, I mean, it's, such, it's just such an odd argument that, that being asked to behave ethically is going to destroy our movement. Like, if your movement is at serious risk of falling apart because someone asked you to behave ethically or consider ethics in what you do, Maybe, maybe some soul searching is needed about what that movement stands for and what that movement does. Um, like, can you imagine if any other profession came forward and said that? Like, imagine if doctors said, "You can't possibly ask us to behave ethically. Medicine, as we know, <laughs> be destroyed." Hmm. It's it's just it's just a very very strange argument. And I think your answer to that that question or how people answer that question really comes down to what you think open source stands for so, and, and what's at the core of that movement. If you think the core of open source is about people working collaboratively on code in order to make the world a better place, then the no harm license still allows people to do that. It simply recognizes that our code isn't being used to make the world a better place. It's being used for some really nefarious and nasty things. And we live in a free world. We should have the right to say no to that. Um, on the other hand, if you think that at the core of open source is being able to just freely copy code for whatever purpose and I don't care if it's used for unconscionable things, well, yeah, no harm kind of does get in the way of that. But that's what it's for. Mm. The kind of movement that would represent no harm being the license on every open source repo is the kind of movement that I'd much rather be part of. I think if it drives some people away, it's going to attract more people to it and make it even stronger. Yeah, and and every you know every change in social history you know comes with this difficult decision, and some people tell telling us that it's going to destroy the world as we know it, um, and that's unfortunately just the, just the way it works is that some people will will not be happy to see that change, um, but it doesn't mean it's it's not a worthwhile change. Yeah, do you think there'll be any backlash? Just as I guess with Patreon, for example, barring right-wing people from using their platform led to Patreon being created. Are we going to see a do-harm license? And should we be concerned about that? <laughs> so uh, what a license that ex 
like what does a do harm license even look like? Are you explicitly required to use the use the software for harm? Yeah, like I I, I don't think so. I don't, I'm not particularly concerned. And I think like so one of the one of the really exciting things that's actually come out of this is again the discussion, and is again like people just like people deciding to choose where they sit on this. There was a great conversation on Twitter between you know yourself, myself, and someone named Francis. Um, which started out as him writing a joke license in response to the learner issue. Oh, yeah. And, and, and then, you know, you started a conversation with him and then he opened like an issue on no harm and he's actually come to the conclusion, well, I don't think no harm is exactly what I want, but I do think we should be setting an ethical bar for what our software is used for. Um, and I think I'm going to put some time in, into making a license that sets that bar where I think is the right place. And that's a great thing. That's that's amazing that someone else is now going away and created a competitor license to, to no harm because again it's it's going to spur more conversation more thought about what our code is used for um, I th- I just yeah I think that's that's an awesome thing to happen to come out of this and I like I look forward to to seeing what Francis comes up with yeah definitely and it sounds like Jamie is working on his own license as well there might be yeah. two or three of them. Yeah, and then and so then you have a situation which is very similar to what we have in the open source world now, where we have a handful of licenses that people usually reach for when they're creating code. There's a great deal of clarity about compatibility and how you can use those licenses together, um, and even automated tools for people who are like, I don't like the GPL, I don't want any GPL code in my uh, in in my dependency graph, and there are tools that automatically help them screen that out, and likewise. There'll be tools that'll allow people to do the same for ethical licenses. Yeah, definitely. Probably won't be too hard to do that. It's already seeing someone suggest something about a certain patch that you can put on the MIT license to make it compatible with those automated tools. I think that was there was an issue on the learner repo about that originally. Maybe we can do the same one. No harm as well. Yeah. I'm gonna bring back a an issue that was raised on no harm by a guy who was almost certainly a troll who was saying oh, it wasn't a new issue it was on the name of the license and he was saying you know what you should call it the social justice warrior license or the virtual signaling license what would you say to people who argue that no harm is just a virtue signaling exercise and won't really lead to any real change I think that's a common argument to anything that might seem a bit too bit too easy. Um, like we've you know we we we've already we've already talked about in this discussion how how even the JSON license was was you know considered a real license um, in some respects by IBM. Um, the fact the fact that coders are already engaging in this discussion and starting to think about where they sit on these issues. Um, I've, I've rarely seen someone accuse someone of virtue signaling who is actually interested in the cause. It's more just another way to call people names when you don't agree with them. If I'm really blunt. Yeah. Um, there's, um, you know, like, um, um, on you know on one of your previous episodes where you talked to uh, someone from Avaz and he talked about how 
you know, how clicktivism, the notion of clicktivism is completely false, that most, you know, a lot of people who click are then leveled up into other actions. Mm. Um, like no one's suggesting for a moment that no harm is going to solve all the world's issues, that just because we apply this license, everything is going to turn into sunshine and rainbows. Um, it's part of, you know, a broader scope of actions that we can undertake. Um, it's one tool in the toolbox. And for some people that won't be their tool of choice and that's fine. Um, but to suggest that it's going to have zero effects whatsoever, I think is an argument for people who don't really watch this scene very closely or don't, um, look at how people are engaged and made to think about where they stand on issues. Yeah, definitely. I guess where I see it being different as well is that it's not an agenda that you're trying to push to make yourself look more ethical or the other members of the No Harm team. It, it's not really about grandstanding individually, which is, I don't really understand necessarily what people mean by social justice warrior, but it seems to be about making yourself look good without really making any real change. Whereas I'm not really seeing that. It's not a personality thing. It's a, it's a real attempt to make a difference. I'm glad you see it that way. Thanks. <laughs> then two other comments that I saw on Twitter recently were one guy was saying that he likes the intention of building more ethical open source software, but he thinks that the legal ramifications of it mean that the only real way to achieve that is to have a strong ethical code of conduct that would almost do the same thing where you would eject contributors from organizations that are doing harm. And he was saying that he reckons that would send them a stronger message that they're not allowed to contribute to any code and they're immediately booted out because of their actions elsewhere. Do you have any thoughts on the relative merits of that? Well, I think there's merits to it in, in the, in the way it affects social license, right? So if, if employees from Palantir and Microsoft and other organizations that are, for example, collaborating with ICE suddenly found themselves not welcome on large open source projects, um, you know, even if they're, you know, even if they're, as, as we've discussed, not really aware of what their company is doing, that certainly sends a very, very strong message that it's not okay and forces people to rethink, um, and so I think, you know, from that perspective, there's merit. Uh, from the perspective of actually using the code, though, um, obviously, they, you know, they're still free to use the code. Um, it's hard to say how much impact that would have on, you know, on, on whether the, the company can effectively use the code. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same tweet you're thinking about, but someone suggested that you know, by, you know, if we block pull requests from Palantir and, and block any issues and sort of any any requests for improvements, um, then they, you know, they won't be able to get the features that they want. But really that kind of thing also starts to then hurt the rest of the community as mm. well. Because yeah. either like either you're either you're choosing not to implement a feature just to kind of smite um uh Palantir, but then lots of other people could benefit from it too. Um or you're um or you you end up like you have maybe it's a security feature. So you just have to implement it. Um, anyway, because otherwise it's, it's going to hurt everyone else. Well, if you were to apply an ethical license, then the decision is much simpler. You can apply all the patches you want, all the issues, all the enhancements, um, and everyone else who's not using the code for harm can benefit from those. Yeah. 
yeah, I tend to agree with you there that it seems like it would limit the the way that the software can be improved and might also be quite hard on individuals to be rejected outright and almost stub, snubbed and excluded completely as individuals. It's probably easier to do it at the organisation level, whereas an individual might take more offence from it. Yeah, there is that aspect too, yeah. And again, like, you know, what we're talking about really is, you know, uh, a license like the Do No Harm license, it's a tool in your toolkit. It's not the only thing that we should be using to, to fight the use of software for evil. It's just one thing we can use. And people will go about it in different ways. And, you know, as long as there's robust discussion about whether or not that's effective, that's, you know, that's the most important thing at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Okay, and then the final concern I've seen is that some people have different views about what should and shouldn't be included. And that there has been some good, robust and respectful discussion on the issue tracker about that. You talked before about there potentially being multiple different licenses out there. Would you see that happening in terms of perhaps some people who are advocates for nuclear or some of the things that are, are slightly grey that maybe there are arguments for including them? Would you how how do you think that's gonna pan out if there can't necessarily be a, a license that works for everyone? Will there be a slight fork of no harm that's no harm nuclear or something like that. I mean, obviously, like, if somebody wants to do that, there's, you know, there's nothing we can do to stop them. And I think an ecosystem of, like, a handful of licenses would not be a bad thing. Um, I Like, one sort of concern that's, that's raised to that is the idea of license proliferation. Um, <sighs> but, I mean, that's, that's only... Like, that's only really an issue if, if two things happen. If, if one, if, if people are just sort of writing their own licenses willy-nilly and not working together with a community to do that, um, it's, you know, it's becoming increasing, increasingly clear to me as we work on No Harm that, that this needs to be a community effort and that the community feels invested in that. And so that's why I have deliberately, like, left issues open for what feels sometimes like a long time, although it's probably not it's probably only like four weeks, um, so that we can get more people's views on them. Um, so I don't, I don't see much value in us just kind of pushing out a license that only reflects, you know, what we think is the right thing. Yeah. I, I think also, though, it's important that we, um, that we make decisions about this, not just on like what we feel, but like, you know, let's, let's have robust conversations about that. Um, like with the example of nuclear, yes, there might in the future be nuclear reactors that are safe and affordable and clean, um, but they don't exist right now um, outside of experiments. Um, and you've got to take into account things like, the you know, it doesn't like the technology doesn't exist on its own. It's used by an industry um, that has an agenda, and that industry does not have a great rep for um, putting safety paramount. It doesn't have a, a great rep for being honest about the risks. Um, so, you know, so so our view is that at this at this point, the the sensible option is to exclude nuclear from the license, not because 
you know, not based on sort of how we feel about it, but like taking a holistic view about how the technology could feasibly be used now and the fact that it isn't like if you if you take into account deployment time, construction time, the impact of destruction of construction, sorry, it's not actually a viable alternative to all the other clean energy options that are out there. Um, so when you look at it in that holistic way, it's it's um, for us, it's like we, we don't really see a question mark around including it in the license. Yeah, it's something that I pretty much have shared your views. I've I've got a friend who is very pro-nuclear and he makes some arguments that it can be economic and it, it can be clean. It's just that we've moved away from it and he argues that it's a more of a, a populism thing at the moment that people are scared of nuclear irrationally. But I tend to agree with you that it, it seems like right now it's taking 15 years to build a nuclear power station, whereas it, it takes a year to build a solar farm. And solar farms and wind farms are getting cheaper all the time and getting more efficient. So it seems like it, it's not really needed. There is discussion still on nuclear and we haven't really had someone from a, a next-gen nuclear startup come and make a, an argument there. It would be interesting if someone from one of the Gen 4 companies did come along and try to make a case for it. But for now, yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely fine with using it with that exclusion in place. In terms of getting no harm out there, how do you think that's going to happen? You talked about it maybe starting with smaller projects and smaller projects growing into large projects. Have you got a target adoption that you want to see happen? Uh, no, we don't. Um, this is, you know, this is very much a, um, a, a passion project for those of us that are working on it. Um, it's, we, don't, we don't spend uh, company hours working on uh, the no-harm license. So... Um, you know, we haven't been able to give as um, as much thought um, to that kind of thing and to sort of having a strategy for adoption, so to speak. I think, um, you know, I, I think at the moment it's probably going to be a case of just um, continuing to engage with people who are thinking about this, looking for things like, you know, the learner license issue and discovering more people who care about what our software is used for um, and drawing their attention to, to no harm. Um, in my, like in the limited time that I have to work on it, I've been looking for, um, associations or organizations of coders who think about these things, um, to reach out to them, um, but haven't, haven't actually actively reached out yet. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause I think, is it the ACEE that has their code of ethical practices, which might be somewhat aligned can't remember exactly which association it is, but there's one that people have been citing recently as talking about the responsibility of programmers to consider the ethical ramifications of their work. I have to find it and pass it on to you. Yeah, and do share a link on the podcast. Yeah, we'll do. And I guess on the adoption plan as well, you, you did put together that uh, the series of milestones within GitHub that I quite quite liked. Making sure that yeah. step one is step one to consolidate the scope before spreading it too widely. Yeah, and I think like I think I think that's a, an easily forgotten but important part of of building something new is that it's not you know it's not just this thing that we like that we're just trying to push out there, 
but we've left it open till I think November for people to contribute and discuss, um, um, you know, what the scope of the license is. Um, and it's not just a practical thing of like, you know, getting, um, getting that finished. It's also, that's how you build communities by having discussions with people and, and, you know, inviting people to get involved in the project and suggest ideas and, and treating them with respect uh, and showing them that their, you know, their interest in this project is valued. So that's, you know, that's a, it's, it's a really important part of, of making this able to flourish is being able to have that discussion and have all these issues, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm very glad to see that by and large, the majority of our issues and pull requests have been opened really quite respectfully and have been discussed really respectfully, um, which is what we hope to see. Yeah. Has it only been something like two comments that have had to be deleted because they were quite disrespectful and breaching the code of conduct? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You just mentioned that learners are, uh, sorry, No Harm's a passion project. Do you want to tell us about the work that you do at Raisley in your day job? Sure. Um, so I'm a developer at Raisley.com. We're a uh, platform for progressive nonprofits. Um, we've helped charities around the world to raise almost $20 million today. Um, so first and foremost, we started out as an online fundraising platform. Uh, colleagues of mine started up Raisley when they found that they were, they were continuously having to solve the same problems over and over um, for charities when it came to, to fundraising websites and just in the end decided to, to build something um, build something that, that works. Um, yeah, so um, I've been with Raisley now for um, a year and a half, I think. Yeah. Um, I can't say en- enough good things about the people that I work with. Um, they're, you know, they're a really inspirational team um, to work with. Um, and I remember you... Um, in the email discussion, you also, Jeremy, you talked about like um, what young coders um, should do if they, you know, if they're thinking about the ethical aspects and of their code. And I think a big part of that is is remembering the rule of averages. Like, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if you want to be a developer that you know thinks about how your code is making the world a better place, then make sure you you find people to be around that inspire you and, and think about those things and talk about those things. Um, you know, not all of us have the luxury to be able to work for a company like, like Raisley or an organization like Avaaz or the, the organization that you work with, Jeremy, but still there's, you know, you can still sort of sit, think about like, are the people that I'm going to be working with as you're looking for work, are they people for whom these kind of thoughts are on their radar? If you look at their Twitter account, you know, do, um, do the issues of our time resonate with them or matter to them or particularly in 2018 outrage them? Um, or are they just all about writing cool code and, and forget the rest? And if, if they are the latter, then they're probably not going to, to nurture your, your, you know, your development in that area and your growth as, as someone who thinks about the social and moral implications of your work. And maybe they're not even going to be the people that sort of help you, grow your your social and emotional intelligence um which is you know which is is actually a a big factor in success more so than you know quite often more so than than capability or ability um or what we kind of consider normal intelligence that's a really good point 
I notice myself that I, I do tend to take on the attitudes of people around me. And if I'm in a, a situation where all of my colleagues aren't really that concerned about the impact of their work or what's happening in the world around them, then that's probably going to flow onto me. It makes, it makes it harder to raise your voice in those situations. And we are, we are social creatures at the end of the day. So unless you're really stubborn and really don't care what other people think about you, which is not a very common quality in people. Most people, even the people who think that they don't care, they care. Um, yeah. They care what others think of them. Um, yeah, so in most, like you need that support around you. You need people who are going to encourage you to think that way. Yeah. It almost makes me think of that question that the recruiter asks you that you could almost flip that on its head when you're interviewing somewhere. You could ask some a question that would try to unpack whether the organization that you're interviewing with does have concern about ethical issues, does consider the ramifications of their work. Yeah, that'd be a great way to flip the interview. Yeah. Well, speaking of the interview, it's been really good chatting to you. Is there anything, any final words that you want to leave us with as a, a encouragement for more people to, to adopt no harm or to consider ethics as part of their work? Yeah, do it. <laughs> you know, in, whether it's engaging in a conversation on Twitter, whether it's, you know, finding like, like-minded people to hang out with, um, you know, whether it's coming over and checking out no harm license and like engaging in some discussion on the issues, um, you know, find something to do that will flex your ethical muscle and challenge you to think more deeply about these issues um, so that you can take that into your work and more importantly into your, into your life because we're not our work. We're, you know, we're on this earth to do things that mean stuff to us and engage us um, mentally and spiritually. I love it. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. It's been great chatting. Likewise.